Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Blockware Intelligence Podcast. Hope you're all doing well. Before we get into the show, let me tell you a little bit about our sponsor, FTX US. FTX US, one of the largest crypto companies in the United States, is the safest, most regulated way to buy and sell Bitcoin, Ethereum, and other digital assets. You might have heard of FTX from their partnerships with Tom Brady, Steph Curry, or the recent Super Bowl commercial with Larry David. With FTX, you can trade crypto with up to 85% lower fees than top competitors. There are no fixed minimum fees, no ACH transaction fees, and no withdrawal fees. You can also use the FTX app to buy your favorite NFTs with no gas fees, supporting both Ethereum and Solana blockchains. Download the FTX app today in minutes by going to ftx.blockwareintelligence.com to earn free crypto on every trade over $10. Again, that's ftx.blockwareintelligence.com to get started today. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Blockware Intelligence Podcast. Today, we have a really special guest for you guys, Dr. Jeff Ross, who runs a hedge fund called Valshire Cap. Dr. Jeff, thank you so much for coming on. We've talked back and forth a lot on Twitter. Uh, we've been on a couple of Twitter spaces together, but it's uh, good to kind of find it, you know, kind of meet you somewhat of face to face through Zoom. So uh, how are you doing? And uh, welcome to the show. I'm doing great. Well, thanks for having me on. I'm really excited to be on your show. I guess we can first start with uh, maybe anybody who isn't familiar with you for some reason. Um, who are you and kind of like what got you into the space and, and what do you do? Sure, sure. So uh, I'll, I'll go back to the beginning just so I can get a quick thing, uh, uh, feel for what I do. So uh, in college, which was way back in the 90s, I had to decide between an investment career or uh, being, a, being a doctor. So I, I decided to become a doctor. So I went down the pre-med route, went to residency and fellowship. Um, finished that in 2008, and then I moved to Colorado Springs and was uh, in private practice as a diagnostic radiologist and an interventional radiologist. Um, and so I did that for uh, about 13 years and just... Re- yeah, it is, it is. It is. So I'm the guy that if you ever go in and get like an x-ray or MRI or CT scan, I'm the doctor that reads those and, and puts a report out. And then I did some image guided minimally invasive surgery. So putting catheters in people and doing weird things like stents and all that. That's what I used to do. Um, so I just retired from that back in October of 2021. Uh, uh, on the side, I founded Valeshire Capital Management and my hedge fund called Valeshire Partners back in 2013, and I've been managing those since basically 2014, the beginning of 2014. Uh, and I'd been doing two careers for about eight years or so, and Valeshire just finally took off uh, enough and has been doing uh, pretty well. So I was able to re- retire finally from medicine, retire from two careers, get down to one career, uh, hang out with my wife more and my kids more. And uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm living the good life now. So were you just kind of, you know, like placing trades on your phone while you were like in between surgeries or like, you know, what was kind of what was going on there? It was pretty intense. So I had I had to do all of my client stuff uh, kind of in the evenings and on the weekends. And I had occasional time off. So I would do just a ton of straight up veil share stuff. But yeah, making trades and stuff. It it was literally kind of like that. Like I would go and if I go went and got a coffee or something, I'd be, you know, quickly doing some kind of things or um, I did a lot of stuff on night shifts. I used to work um, overnight for different things being on call. And yeah, I'd get a lot of work done then too. So it was pretty intense and I didn't sleep a lot. And I definitely like working one career more than working two careers. Sure. And is the fund your own capital or did you just raise money from like family and friends or how did, you know, how did that kind of process work? Both. So back in 2014, I started the fund, literally, literally no clients. 
120,000 of my own money uh, from, from doctoring and just opened the fund, turned the shingle around and said, okay, I'm open. And it took like, I don't know, nine months until I got my first client uh, even. And then, cause most people are like, you're some doctor, you know, I used to write for Seeking Alpha and the Motley Fool. Um, and so I got kind of a following from that. And then, so basically it started as a family and friends type fund and it's, and it's grown a little bit more. So I have my hedge fund on the one hand, and then I also do separately managed accounts. So I also manage people's IRAs and brokerage accounts. Makes sense. How did the process of like starting a fund work? Like all the, you know, kind of just like bureaucratic, like paperwork and all that stuff. Kind of like walk us through that. Cause I'm, I'm curious, you know, that's something that I'd like to do one day is, is kind of participate or, or start my own fund. So I'm curious. That's awesome. And you should totally, you got a great mind for it. you and Dylan both. I, I think both of you guys should run your own funds or co-collaborate or something like that. Um, so it's, it's a, it's a lot of legwork at the beginning. I think, I think the best thing to do is find a good attorney who, who is used to working with new emerging fund managers and they're around. And, and I can, I can, I get asked this question actually a couple of times a week. And so I usually refer people to the same people, but you need to find a good attorney who can just lay out all the legal groundwork for you and get all that set up. And then you need to find something called a fund administrator. And those are the people who basically they do the accounting and then they hand, uh, they hand out the month statements to your investors, like the net asset value of their purchases. And you get this sort of team of people working around you. So I kind of outsource everything and I just make all the investment decisions. But then I also do all kind of the operating and CEO type decisions as well. Um, and, and yeah, and you just sort of get going, you put the pieces in place. And once you get established, you have to form an LLC. Usually you do it in Delaware or some people do it like, a, you know, Cayman Islands or something like that. There's different pros and cons to all those kind of things. And then you just, you just start doing it. I will tell you, um, you said it before we started this, that you're kind of introverted and I'm introverted too, honestly. Like, I feel like I'm, uh, I, I can talk if I have to talk, but I kind of prefer just to sit in my, my room and be a recluse, you know, and, and do my investing. Raising money for me is the hardest part. Like I do not like asking people for money. I don't like promoting myself if I can help it. Um, so that was the hardest just to kind of get off the ground and let the results start speaking for themselves over time. And then people finally start coming, but it, it took a long time. I thought I would be like totally successful about three years into it. And it took me about, you know, five to seven years to kind of really get, get my footing and, uh, and, uh, and to be able to transition out of medicine. So yeah, it's a lot of work, but I'm happy to help you if you have other specific questions offline. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Appreciate it. Um, I, so obviously like you're kind of like known for Bitcoin, uh, but I do see you, you know, you trade other, you know, equities, um, whenever you're you know posting on Twitter, at least. Mm -hmm. So from what I see, um, but like, did the fund start oriented around Bitcoin? Uh, or is this kind of been like a niche thing that you've just like really gone down the rabbit hole with? Or like, I guess what I'm asking is like, is the fund kind of centered around Bitcoin or is that just like a, you know, a, a strong interest of yours within the portfolio? Right. So mostly the latter, mostly a strong interest. The fund actually started in 2014. I used to be, get this a, a value oriented kind of Buffett-esque um, uh, investor where a stock picking investor focused mainly in healthcare and somewhat in technology. And then, so since then I've kind of expanded if, you know, you're not old enough, but you, you read your history, you know your stuff. So the 2010s, that decade was a terrible decade for value investing. It just didn't do well at all. And so I sort of morphed into a system, okay, what actually works? Like I, my goal is to make money and generate alpha for my clients. So I can't keep sticking with this process that just doesn't work. So I keep having new iterations of my process. And then on the side, I got into crypto, sucked into the altcoin world back in 2016 and 2017 didn't do any in Valeshire, but did that on, on my own. Still didn't really know what Bitcoin was. I kind of knew, but it just was just another like crypto to me. Um, 
and then, uh, you know, ramped up in 2017, got wrecked uh, at the beginning of 2018, had to pay a huge amount of taxes. Uh, and then it wasn't until basically late 2018 that I started going down the rabbit hole on Bitcoin 2019. Then I started educating my clients about it and putting Bailshire funds into that in earnest. Um, but yeah, so it was kind of a roundabout way into it. So now I'm very Bitcoin. Uh, I'm like a Bitcoin fanatic, uh, but I still have my equities. I still love investing in companies like equities for the long haul um, and then kind of crypto related plays as well for additional alpha. Sure. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I feel like you'd have the edge in the, you know, the healthcare sector. So it's not surprising to, to hear you say that. Um, right. Yeah, like what I'm curious for, for maybe listeners at home there, you know, maybe find running a fund really interesting. Like what is a quote unquote, you know, day in the life look like for someone who runs a fund? Because if I'm not wrong, it's, it's just you, right? It is. It is. I'm actually hiring another guy, but that's uh, that's somewhere somewhere in a few months, but yes, basically so far it's been just me. Um, I love it. it. Honestly, what do I do? My days are filled mostly with reading. Uh, I just learn and learn and learn and I soak up, you know, I, I read all the stuff you write, uh, you and Dylan, and I, I love any great macro thinker. I kind of absorb all of their stuff. You know, Lynn Alden comes to mind, Ray Dalio, Stan Drunk, Stan Drunkenmiller is kind of my hero. He's, he's, he's just a man in the hedge fund world. I think he went 30 years without a losing year, which is incredible. So spent a lot of time trying to figure out how he did that and that got me to uh, to have an investment approach from more of a macro perspective. So the things that uh, kind of bug people on Twitter when I talk about being bearish from a macro standpoint, that's kind of how uh, Drucken Miller and Ray Dalio have invested. And when you when you when you can read the tea leaves, when you see what the economy is doing under the hood, and you see what watch what inflation is doing, and then see what the Fed is doing, you can combine those things and sort of determine which asset classes should perform in which way. So whether it's treasuries or currencies or you know stocks or commodities, they're actually kind of predictable uh, more than most people think they are. And so that's how I've. Uh, morphed from just a straight stock picking value investor into kind of a macro top-down guy. And then I uh, have incorporated momentum-based strategies into my trades as well. Um, so yeah, it's been working out pretty well. I, I do want to get into like your specific thesis, but before we kind of like venture off into that, I, while we're kind of on this topic of like the whole day in the life thing, when you wake up in the morning, you know, what do you look at to kind of like structure your market view, right? Like, what do you look at to kind of say, okay, well, let me see what, what happened overnight. Um, I guess the question is oriented around just in general for, you know, all markets, but in specific, given, you know, it's kind of a, a Bitcoin oriented show, like, you know, as far as the Bitcoin market specifically, but, you know, I guess feel free to start with kind of, you know, traditional markets and then pivot to just like, what do you look at, you know, Bitcoin wise? Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll start out to say the first thing I do is I, I always wake up and I look at the price of Bitcoin to see what I missed overnight, because it's always pretty interesting to me. Um, then I... Uh, I spend a lot of time uh, looking at macro data uh, and and kind of going through that and, and getting my big picture view in mind. Okay, like where are we? How is the data coming in? Is it pointing towards you know a decelerating economy, accelerating economy? What's inflation doing? Those kind of things. I don't care that much about news events because they tend to be just transient things that don't really move the markets. If they move the markets, it's usually temporary, and then it just sort of goes back to what it's supposed to be doing. Um, I look at macro like it's these kind of big, huge tsunami waves that are coming in, and you can either like you can try to fight it, but they'll just completely wipe you out. So I try to like surf those waves if I can, or if I can't read it very well, I just get off and let them pass. Um, and that's sort of my view of macro. 
Um, and then I'll spend a lot of time, you know, actually I spend a lot of time now in the mornings on cafe Bitcoin, uh, cause they, they'll give the Bitcoin news pretty well. I really like those guys there, like the Swan team and the Bitcoin magazine team. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll sort of pop into those rooms just to get the news uh, and see what's going on. Uh, and then, and then that's sort of it. Uh, I have, I have like my fun as far as the individual things that I'm invested in. So Bitcoin, obviously, and then my other equities, I have some like hold forever stocks that I don't really care about what the news is saying or even what their price is doing. Cause my plan is just to hold them for at least 10 years or more. Um, same with Bitcoin. And then my, I have sort of the trading momentum side of things. So then I go through, I have a whole system where I, I plug in all of these names, see what they're doing, see what the price action is showing. Are they a buy? Should I add more to it? Should I take some away? You know, is it a sell? Those kind of things. So I'll go through that for um, usually about an hour or two uh, in the mornings. And then I do that in the afternoon before the market closes. Makes a lot of sense. And for Bitcoin, you know, what do you look at as far as like, you know, maybe you don't want to say specific indicators, but just generally speaking, you know, talk about like momentum, for example, like what are some of these metrics that you look at, you know, all the like through technical analysis or derivatives? Uh, I don't know if you dabble in uh, looking at like on-chain stuff, but as far as like those two things, um, you know, just like price action as well, you know, what are some of the tools that, that you use to kind of analyze the market on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, so I love uh, on-chain um, sort of just from a geek out perspective. It doesn't really help me with trading very well, but what I think of on-chain is this is sort of under the hood, the intrinsic value of Bitcoin, like where is it going? Who's buying? Uh, is it is it on exchanges? Is it off exchanges? Uh, do we have whales coming in? Is it small people coming in? Like all of that stuff, you can you can uh, all the information you can gather from on chain. Super fascinating to me. I find it less helpful for kind of day to day trading type decisions though. Uh, and so it's good to know your limitations is how I look at that. So I think it's fantastic. And to me, it always points to look. We're here right now, and we're we're kind of you know doodling around in these little ranges, you know, 30,000, 40, 60,000 back and forth. But 10 years from now, we're going to be way up here. We're going to be at a million, five million a coin, some, somewhere in that range. And so I don't really care that much what happens here. The on-chain tells me that we're still on this trajectory up to here. So that's what I love with on-chain. And I kind of like to geek out with that. Um, I don't do traditional technical stuff quite as much. Um, I, I'll do that sometimes, but I don't really believe in it th- that much. So, so you know, every time you can just draw a line and if you've done technical stuff, you know, you're, you're the one drawing the line on the chart and making your little flags or your, your pennants and whatever you want to do. And I have good friends that do that for a living. So I'm not hacking on it. You know, Peter Brandt is actually a good friend of mine and uh, other guys do this for a living. I personally can't really make it work. I, I, I'm not convicted enough about that to actually make big trading decisions on it. I use more kind of momentum-based strategies just to tell me like, are we generally moving in a positive direction? Are we generally moving in a bearish direction uh, and go from there? So, you know, like I said, I don't trade, I I don't ever sell Bitcoin, but I do um, buy, sell, trade Bitcoin related things. I call them the Bitcoin proxies. So, you know, crypto exchanges like Coinbase, Galaxy Digital, um, Ethereum. I, when, when I, I was just saying on a room earlier this morning, when, I, when I'm nervous about the price of Bitcoin, if I think Bitcoin is going to drop in price in the near term, I'm really happy to short Ethereum uh, like that. So crypto exchanges sometimes like a high beta trade on bitcoin exactly yeah Yeah, high beta exactly so like if bitcoin's going down it's going to go down further if bitcoin's going up those things are going to go up faster uh so i I enjoy those things for for trading all right cool so you kind of covered the you know second part of the question i was going to ask you which is actually you know i guess of those crypt you know crypto or bitcoin proxies 
how much of it is actually, you know, just spot holdings forever, which I'm guessing is just your, you know, core Bitcoin position versus how much are you actively managing? And then as kind of a segue off of that, what's the average kind of time horizon of those, of those trades that you're making on a directional basis? Yeah, yeah, cool. So I have, my fund is divided into two sections. The hold forever, I have 15 equities or equity related funds and one uh, crypto and all that is is Bitcoin. So Bitcoin is part of my hold forever, which I don't plan on trading. The other half of the fund is that's where basically highly volatile uh, stocks and then crypto related kind of things are in. When I say crypto, I mean like basically Bitcoin infrastructure. So I, you know, uh, Bitcoin miners, those kind of things and some exchanges as well. Those are things that I trade in and out of. And I use volatility and momentum to kind of figure out when to get in and out and how much of a position size to have in those sort of things. So right now, given that we've had kind of bearish price action, I'm still holding this core over here on this side of things. I'm barely into anything over here because almost everything, things tried to make kind of a bullish move in the last couple of weeks, which I, I'm not convinced is gonna hold. Um, so, uh, in fact, only only one on that list is actually still going. It's a crypto exchange called Galaxy Digital, which actually just got pummeled today. Everything else is just still in a bearish trend. And so I either just leave them alone and don't touch them or I'll short them. So if I feel like they're kind of re, uh, reaching the top end of their volatility range and they're in a bearish trend, then I'll um, then I'll try shorting them sometimes. Or again, I'll just it just sort of depends on, on my mood and how convinced I am that that they have further down to go. I had been shorting those things kind of heavily in January, February. Right now, um, uh, and we can get into this if you want, but I think that there's just kind of underlying buying power going on right now in Bitcoin, partly because of the Terra Luna thing, partly because we're ramping up into the Bitcoin conference. So I think that kind of brings optimism and brings in uh, more a little more buying power, partly because of Michael Saylor and MicroStrategy, and they just got another loan through Silvergate Bank to buy, I think, another 250 million of Bitcoin. I don't like shorting anything like that uh, related to Bitcoin if I feel like there's a chance that I could get just zinged on the, on the wrong side of it and get short squeezed. So I don't want to do that. So I'm actually, my plan is to wait till after the Bitcoin conference, see if there's any major announcement. Like obviously if like Mexico comes out with the news that they're, they're all in, they're going to pull an El Salvador and they're going to start buying a crazy amount of Bitcoin or something like that then I would be glad I'm not short at all. If we don't get some kind of major announcement, I'm actually pretty bearish on the price action starting kind of after the conference and beyond that because my macro views are so negative um, and because it's been performing well lately, I think that we may be due for another uh, drawdown in the price of Bitcoin. Obviously related equities, I think are going to get hammered. Yeah, I agree with a lot of the things that you talked about, about kind of the underlying bid. I think another thing would just be I guess you know, probably to a smaller extent, but just, you know, like seeing Russia's reserves getting like essentially frozen. Right. And mm -hmm. um, that guy from credit Suisse, what's his name? Zoltan yeah. essentially talking about how this is like long-term bullish for Bitcoin and like kind of the end game here is, is going to, you know, delve into to some bid for BTC, you know, and, you know, kind of a broader time horizon. I think, you know, as well, just like the value proposition of, of Bitcoin is just like this decentralized permissionless money has, has really kind of emerged out of this whole situation, I guess. Um, how much of this, though, do you think is just correlation to TradFi and obviously like particularly like risk on equities? Because, I mean, if you I was actually looking at this today, like if you just pull up TradingView and like, you know, Bitcoin is pretty much trading almost tick for tick on a kind of day to day basis um with with you know the qqq at least that's what i was yep. looking at so how much of it do you think is that and then i guess on the on the correlation what do you think about the correlation in general like i guess 
over the longer term, like, do you think Bitcoin will eventually decouple from this or like, how do you kind of just think through that correlation moving forward? Yeah, yeah, good question. So I looked at it just this morning too, the 15 day correlation with um, SPX. So the S&P 500 is 0.91, which is really high. It's 0.82 over the last 30 days. So again, and, and about the same for Qs as well, small caps as well. So to me, that just says, yes, it's still trading like a risk on asset. That's just how the market sees it. So I view it and most Bitcoiners who understand what Bitcoin really is actually view it as the ultimate risk off safe haven asset. It's the thing you would you want to go to over the long run to, to preserve your purchasing power. We are in a huge minority though, right? Like barely anybody really understands Bitcoin, even though lots of people own a little bit of Bitcoin, very few truly understand it. I would say the vast majority of market participants still think of it as kind of a risky tech stock and it's treated, it, it behaves exactly like a risky tech stock. And so that's why if I'm bearish from a macro perspective, I think risk on assets get hammered. And unfortunately, I think that means Bitcoin uh, gets hammered too. Now, Ironically, that's a trading, that's a short-term opinion. And so I keep telling people, you got to know yourself. You got to know, are you a trader or are you a long-term investor? If you're a trader, then yeah, think about, you know, you can think about how you want to deal with this situation, maybe hedge against it, do some kind of things that I do in the fund. Long-term investors should be licking their chops though. And they should be psyched for the idea that the price of Bitcoin might go down in the coming months. Uh, and because they're going to get, they're going to get more sats for their dollars. So it's actually a great deal if you're long-term minded, if you have a time frame, a, a horizon of five, 10, 20 years. This is the time to be dollar cost averaging. This is the time to be aping into it. Uh, we're going to have some just really fantastic deals, I think, throughout much of 2022. I think it's going to be a sat stacker's paradise. Uh, so I'm happy for people who are new to this space too, because they can get in in size uh, this year. Uh, and I think even though it's going to be volatile, this is the time to be stacking sats. So I think I answered your question. Oh yeah, totally. Yeah, I think, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I think that makes, that makes a lot of sense. I agree with a lot of things you said. Uh, I do, we've been going for like a half hour now. We haven't even talked about macro. So I want to pivot into that. And, and this has kind of been your, your main kind of, you know, talking point over the last few months. So uh, I guess, you know, you, you've talked about this on, you know, a few other podcasts, but maybe from a high level, just kind of talk people through what your thesis has been over the last few months and how does that kind of tie into to where we are you know, today, especially with you know, the Fed recently raising rates, 25 basis points. Sure. So my original thesis back in um, the first time I, I, I got kind of some traction talking about this was back on Preston Pish's show late January. And my theory at the time, my thesis was that both inflation and uh, GDP had peaked in the fourth quarter of 2021. I was half right. So GDP definitely did peak and it's been decelerating since then. Um, but inflation actually kept going higher and higher. So, you know, the, the January print came in hot, the February print came in even hotter. Um, March is still remains to be seen. We won't know that for uh, a week or so. Um, so when you have uh, decelerating GDP, so decelerating real growth uh, in, a, in a country um, and decelerating inflation, so basically it's high, but now it's, it's starting to fade a little bit, which is what I think is coming for this coming quarter. That type of um, setup is really bad for risk on assets. So, you know, equities, small caps, tech stocks, um, Bitcoin, crypto, the whole world, all of that stuff tends to do very poorly in that type of situation. For people who aren't familiar with those and, and don't pay much attention to this, the last two times in recent history where we had those these two things happening, decelerating economy, decelerating inflation, 
was in uh, around March of 2020. Uh, and then also in the fourth quarter of 2018. So I bring those examples up a lot because at that time, both times, Bitcoin was just kind of hanging out, doing its thing, it grinding a little bit lower, and then just bam, out of nowhere, it dropped 50%. It did that in about a week in March of 2020. It took about a month in November of 2018 to get hammered by 50%. So I look, I look at that as just this fantastic buying opportunity. If it happens, lots of people will get freaked out by that. The reason why I keep talking about it is because I want people, Bitcoiners, the plebs that I, you know, I, I talk to all the time on Twitter, I want them to be steeled in their mind so that if this happens, they're ready for it and they don't freak out and hit the panic button if Bitcoin does drop below 30,000 again or even gets close to 20,000, which I think it could. Um, so that's my macro outlook. I think in the near term, uh, I'm extremely bearish. I think the Bitcoin price action just in the last couple of weeks has been very strong, but it's because of these factors. I think that we talked about, there's a strong bid. There's like, it's putting a floor underneath the price. After uh, kind of mid-April, after the Bitcoin conference, uh, I'll be very, uh, I'll be watching it very closely because I think that that'll be the time if something is going to happen, that that would be the time for it to drop. Coming in, if we keep on my macro picture, coming into the summer, I think I think before the summertime, we're going to have a bottom in risk on assets. And I think uh, Bitcoin tends to be the leading indicator. U.S. small cap stocks also tend to be the leading indicator. They both peaked around November 8th, and then they've been on this kind of descent ever since then. And then it took kind of the S&P 500 and even the Qs a little bit longer to catch up before they began the descent. I think we bottomed sometime kind of April, May, possibly June. And then we're actually going to have um, kind of good economic conditions relative to the prior year. So I think we'll have kind of a ramp up into the summer. But then, okay, so hold that thought, ramp up into the summer. We just saw that the, the um, yield curve is right near inverting, or it has inverted, actually uh, just inverted the 10 and 2s inverted transiently yesterday. That portends to a coming recession. Recessions are bad for risk on equities. Um, they're very bad. Uh, historically speaking. And so I think the most likely scenario is that we ramp up into the summer and then we start getting ugly again, possibly going to recession in the fourth quarter of 2022, extending into Q1 of 2023, some second sort of bottom over there. And then I think it's off to the races after that. So you want to spend this time in the, in the coming months, as well as if, if I'm right, kind of the uh, Q4 of 2022, accumulate, accumulate, accumulate. And then because I think 2023 and beyond are just going to be just astonishing uh, for Bitcoin. What do you think about the concept of like Bitcoin selling off and bottoming first? I think, for example, like, you know, after the COVID dump and, and as well in November of, of last year, uh, Bitcoin was kind of like a leading indicator of, you know, stock indices. So being as to like this, you know, 24-7, you know, extremely liquid market. Um, what do you think about the concept of like Bitcoin potentially selling off or bottoming out first, like throughout that thesis playing out? Definitely. I definitely think it is. I've been saying that too, because I think it sniffed out trouble under the hood as early as the beginning of November, November 8th, when it peaked. And I think it's probably going to be the first or one of the first major asset classes to bottom as well. So I'll be watching that tech stocks, like especially the, the smaller uh, tech stocks that have just gotten destroyed, like Shopify and things like that. They'll find a bottom, the ARK stocks, you know, Kathy Woods kind of things. I think those things bottom uh, first alongside of Bitcoin or real close to there. And then and then they'll be the first to ramp up. And we could see literally like an explosive move higher. So you, you'll want to be kind of ready to deploy some cash. I don't try to time bottoms. I like wait for a bottom to be confirmed before I get back into lots of these kind of things. But um, that will be the time to go in big. And I think I think like at that point, depending on how low Bitcoin goes, I think a double uh, within a couple of months is is 
probably going to be pretty easy, maybe even a triple uh, at that point. We'll have to see see what happens. But um, I'm really excited for that to happen. I hope it plays out as planned, but we'll see. We'll see what time gives us. Sure. Um, you had compared a little bit to like the March 2020 sell-off, and I'm just um, I, I want to like maybe like, you know push back a little bit and just yeah. like ask you the argument I would make and and. I fully understand, like, if you have some big macro sell-off that triggers some type of, like, you know, credit crunch or, you know, which obviously in, in that event, people are not selling things they want to sell. They're selling things that they have to sell. So, like, obviously that that's understood. But I think the, I don't know, quote unquote, like, difference between now and then would be, obviously, like, that was a huge black swan. Nobody really saw that coming. But from the market structure standpoint, derivatives were really jacked up heading into that. And, you know, every, it was coming into the having, And so derivatives were like extremely levered long, like looking at like funding or like, you know, uh, you know, derivatives premium to spot, like some of these kinds of things, people were basically set up to, you know, be extremely bullish into the having versus now it seems like investors over the last you know month or two in the Bitcoin market have been a lot more defensive by looking at some of those similar derivatives metrics. Um, and so like, I don't know, I guess the general premise that like whenever people are defensive, you know, the likelihood for some type of deep liquidation move is, is much less than when people are least expecting it, right? So obviously, like if we had some credit event, obviously Bitcoin would sell off. But with that being said, do you think because of some of these things that I just kind of described of the current, you know, somewhat defensive, you know, setup in the derivatives market, do you think maybe that decreases the likelihood of having some like 50% candle in one day in, in Bitcoin? I do think so. And that's the one thing that bothers me about my thesis in the near term. So I think we're going to see that set up towards the end of the year. I think when we have kind of a bullish move in the summer and people think the trouble's all behind us, then I think that's when everybody's going to go levered long. And that's when everybody's going to get wrecked because I I think we're going to head probably into a recession somewhere around that time. Obviously, I could be wrong. In the short term, though, I agree. Like that's that's where the hole in my thesis is. Like we may have already bottomed. It's possible that this move in the stock markets and move in and Bitcoin were as bad as it gets, and we're moving forward now because because to your point, people aren't uh, taking on risk right now, uh, and so things keep creeping up. You know, the risk assets keep keep going up, and it's and it's possible now we just keep going up into the summer, and that would be fantastic. Um, sorry, there's some pounding going on here. If you can no, hear, I don't that. hear it. No, oh, good, good. So yes, that that's that's where. In fact, uh, I was on Preston's show, to, uh, kind of going back and forth with uh, Joe uh, Carlosari because he yeah. he thinks that we've also bottomed and now we're basically going to go up and and it's possible we could even approach new all time highs. I think that's possible. It it certainly could happen. And I and the reason why I think I might be wrong is one, it's a good contrarian call to be. Yes, I'm bearish, but hey, Bitcoin might climb a wall of worries and risk on assets might climb a wall of worry and just kind of creep up higher and higher and higher for the next few months. That would be awesome if that happened. Um, so yeah, I, to your point, yes, uh, that's why I don't I don't think uh, a 50% drop right now is very likely. I would get more concerned if the price kept going up to say in the 50,000s and then people started believing uh, that we're going to go to all time highs again. And then that's when they would add on leverage and then that and then they would get wrecked and we would see another leverage long liquidation. No, that that makes a lot of sense. I guess essentially, if you think of for the last year, you've been like just ranging between 30 and 60K, you know, Mm -hmm. like SFPing the the highs again. I think that that could make sense again. uh, Obviously, I think the only. I've been thinking about this as well. Like, you know, will we just see derivatives get jacked at the top of the range again, which will allow us to nuke back to the bottom? I mean, my my only, I guess, like, um, like you know, 
devil's advocate point I would make to that would be like, if we got to the top of the range, I know this is like a big if, but if we got to the top of the range and people were getting defensive, knowing it is the top of the range um, and they started, you know, like fading on derivatives, like everyone expecting that we're going to head back down to the bottom, then maybe that would change my thesis on that. But generally thinking like if we get back to the top of the range, you know, just like natural market psychology, people will probably get um, extremely bullish and maybe that'll play into your kind of macro thesis, but a lot of kind of like, you know, throwing out a lot of like, if, if, and you know, maybe this happens stuff, but um, so getting back into the macro, um, one of the other things that I think is, is like a very real kind of risk to markets right now. And I'm sure you probably agree with this is the potential of some type of, I don't want to say like Lehman brothers event sound like a complete doomer, but like some type of event spinning out of everything going on with Russia. I mean, obviously like commodities have been mooning and just like the general like sanctions we've seen on Russia and, you know, maybe some type of crack forming in the financial system. Obviously that's like a non-zero event, but like I have no way to really kind of like measure the probability of that happening. What do you think, you know, about that in general and how do you kind of like think through probabilistically uh, the, the likelihood of some type of event of, of some sort like happening? That's a really good question. And I get asked that kind of stuff a lot. Um, because here's my take on it. Whenever we are set up for, when the macro uh, sort of tea leaves are all reading bearish, like they were back in February of 2020 and like they were in the fourth quarter of 2018 and like I believe they are now, bad news has a way of happening. And, and, and the same thing, the same news that would get sort of absorbed as a non-event by the markets when things are good under the hood um, they can they can cause the market to crash. So so um, so COVID is a great example of that. Back in back in February, all of my macro indicators were giving me red flags. So I was like, I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm getting cautious. We're going to take profits. We're going to sit on the sidelines and go. We were in like 80% cash, 10% treasuries, and 10% gold. I think. I had no idea what was going to happen. I saw COVID was kind of starting. The news was in China and all that kind of stuff was coming. And then all of a sudden, just like, you know, the end of February and into early March, the markets just got just hammered. And, and everyone was just like panicked about COVID and then panic. They had to sell their risk assets. Everybody was just hitting the sell button. That news just has a way of, of, of uh, acting, causing the market to act poorly if the conditions are ripe for it. And so that's why I think we're in another uh, scenario uh, like that right now. So I, I'm seeing just lots of red flags from an economic perspective and probably from an inflationary perspective as well. And, and then you throw on top of that, that, that the Fed is tightening, right? We're going to go through a tightening cycle right now, which I think they should have started last year, but, but here we are. Um, I just think that we're getting set up for some type of news event. So who knows what it is? Maybe Russia really threatens uh, nuclear action. Maybe the U.S. decides to go in and, and get involved somehow. Or maybe the U.S. and China start, you know, button heads a little bit more. Maybe another COVID variant comes out that's actually worse than all the other ones and everybody panics and freaks out. This stuff just has a way of happening when the, when the, when the setup, when the red flags are all out there, bad news has a way of coming into the forefront uh, in people's minds. So that's how I look at it. I don't really care what the news is. I just think that there is going to be some sort of news that will act as a catalyst because everything is pointing in that direction. That's a long answer to your question. That makes sense. I don't no, really yeah, care. Okay. okay. I don't really care what the news is and I don't pay attention to it, but the news tends to go along with where, what the underlying macro conditions sure. are. You're just saying the pushing. probabilities of something like that is, is highly probable that we're going to get some big bad news event in the next month or two. Sure. Now that, that makes total sense. Yeah. Um, so 
Jeff, I want to I want to pivot to one thing that you said, which really kind of like had my ears perk up during the conversation with Preston is that we're in the kind of final stage of, of fiat currencies, in particular, kind of the reign of the U.S. dollar. This is something that uh, Luke Groman would, was also talking about uh, in a couple different podcasts that that he did, which I'm sure you agree with me. It's been one of the, the best kind of thinkers around this whole like mm-hmm. Russia situation. But uh, how do you how do you think through that thesis um, of, you know, us kind of being in the final stages of, of fiat currencies? Um, and how long do you think that process is going to take? Like, just kind of walk us through how you kind of foresee that that kind of playing out. Yeah. So first of all, when I, I on Preston's show, I said final days. I meant from a big macro perspective, like we're in the end times, but this could take years to decades and it probably will take decades. So the way I look at it is a couple of things. I think the U.S., the foundations in the U.S. dollar as being the world's reserve currency are clearly crumbling already. It's starting to dissipate and it's starting to decrease as, as the major player. Other things are rising. The, most, the, 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 the second most popular is the Chinese yuan. I think Chinese, uh, China in general is on the up and up and the U.S. is on the decline. And so at some point, there's going to be a transition point where kind of they take over as the world's major power. That's, that's a little bit far off of what we're talking about. I do think China, Russia, and their allies have intentionally been, uh, they, they, they saw what is coming. They, they realized that when they buy crazy amounts of U.S. treasuries, that they're actually funding the U.S. war machine, to, and it's to their detriment in many ways. And they're funding and supporting the U.S. petrodollar system. So way back in 2014, they decided they're not going to continue buying U.S. treasuries at the same level they were. And so they've been decreasing that ever since. Who picked up the slack? The Federal Reserve. So the Federal Reserve has been printing money and monetizing the debt. So the U.S. is buying the debt of the U.S., and it's and that doesn't really work out, as everybody knows. You can't you can't buy your own debt and pay it off. At some point, uh, the victim is the U.S. dollar and the the purchasing power of the U.S. dollar. So the people who hold the U.S. dollar, us, the U.S. citizens, and people around the world who own the U.S. dollar, we're getting rapidly devalued. Our, our purchasing power is is going down. I think if you look out about uh, 10 years from now, I see three major currencies. Uh, so we have tons of currencies, tons of smaller government fiat currencies right now. I think they're going to coalesce. Um, one by one, these smaller currencies are going to experience hyperinflation and people are going to kind of panic as, as anybody would and move that purchasing power into one of the big three. So the US dollar, the Chinese yuan and Bitcoin. And I think over time, 10 years from now say, those are basically gonna be the only three currencies that matter. I don't know what kind of proportion they're gonna have. It's gonna be interesting to watch too, because as Bitcoin Bitcoiners know, we don't really need these fiat currencies as a medium of exchange. If we have the Lightning Network and, and there's gonna be obviously more and more and better tools at that point um, to use Bitcoin, we really don't even need the fiat currencies. So I think that the government fiat currencies though are going to try really hard. I think China and its allies are gonna to try to wall off Bitcoin and have their own CBDCs, have their own ecosystem system where they're totally in uh, control, centralized control. I'm waiting to see what the U.S. does, but I really hope, obviously, we go down the Bitcoin route. I would like to see in the next several years us starting to put uh, include Bitcoin as a reserve asset to strengthen the U.S. dollar. I think that's one way that we could add tons of life uh, to the dying U.S. dollar as well. 
Uh, and then all of the other currencies, including even the, I think the Euro and especially the Japanese yen, which has been kind of a major staple currency, a strong currency for decades and decades and decades. I think that's probably gonna mostly go away and be irrelevant uh, 10 years from now. And, uh, and, and the reason why I have such a fast time frame on that is because Bitcoin is increasing exponentially. It's growing exponentially. And so it's just going to start, start absorbing all of these other currencies and all of that purchasing power uh, in the next 10 years. So I just think we have a very, very different world 10 years from now when it comes to currencies. Sure. And like, how does, how does Bitcoin play into all this as well? Like um, when we talk about like the end game for Bitcoin, when we think about like, you know, like the S curve of adoption, you know, with, with all that being said, like what, what's kind of the catalyst in your mind? Is it like the fixed income market just like completely breaking down as like Preston's always like banging the drum on like, what is that like? How, how does that kind of process play into the thesis that you just described? Like, what, what's going to be the thing in your mind that really sends Bitcoin? Yeah, so it, I think it's all of those things sort of in conjunction. I think as the dollar, as we start seeing panic in people, and I think we're starting to just see that now, right? We're having high levels of inflation, not hyperinflation, but high levels of inflation. People are getting priced out of the goods that they want. Quality of life is going down. Income inequality is increasing more and more. That causes wars. That makes lots of unhappiness. That's when regime changes happen, including even the US. We're not going to be uh, immune to that kind of stuff. And so the same, so basically, I view treasuries also as just they're the US dollar, they're interest bearing dollars. Um, so they are also going to crack. And I think more and more people are realizing look, US treasuries are essentially return free risk. Like, why would I hold treasuries if I know that with inflation being where it is, even if it comes down a lot? I'm still losing money. I'm still losing my real purchasing power if I hold treasuries. So one by one, these big pensions and endowments are going to start realizing that they're going to have these hard conversations and these big meetings. And they're going to decide like, look, we can't do 60, 40 stocks, bonds anymore. We need to do like 60, 30, 10 and put 10 in Bitcoin or five in Bitcoin. So I think lots of that fixed income money is going to come into Bitcoin, I think. Um, and then, as I was saying earlier, other countries who have much weaker currencies than the dollar and the yuan, they're going to start deciding to, hey, look, I'm going to put my money in Bitcoin too, or at least put some of it in. Uh, they're going to try to transfer into better, sounder, stronger money. Um, and so that's how I see it playing out. I think it happens slowly at first, then all at once. And then we hit that vertical phase of adoption. And I think people are going to start panicking at that point, like, oh, shoot, I should have done this years ago and I didn't. And they're going to start transferring into Bitcoin very quickly. That's where people are going to be talking about hyper Bitcoinization in earnest. Um, again, I don't know when it happens, uh, but, you know, Bitcoin keeps surprising to the upside. I think it kind of lulls people into boredom and, and the volatility kind of throws people off, but then it just goes wham and it's going to jack up. And, you know, these, these days of $40,000 per Bitcoin, we're not going to believe we just sat on our, on our butts and didn't just buy everything we could at that point. Cause I think there's going to be a day where it's 500,000, a million dollars per Bitcoin. And, uh, we're going to look back fondly at these days. Sure. Yeah. No, um, that makes a lot of sense. And like kind of what you said was essentially like, you're going to have to buy Bitcoin, not because you want to, but because you have to, right? Yeah, right. In the end, um, what do you think, I guess, you know, in, in nominal terms, we could see Bitcoin five, ten million million if it does what, you know, a lot of Bitcoiners, you know, theorize it, it will do. Mm -hmm. in, in purchasing power terms, I guess in kind of today's terms, or maybe if you want to use a non-dollar amount to kind of describe this, what do you think the value of one Bitcoin will ultimately be? Man, that's a tough question. Well, I agree with Sailor that it's going to go up forever. I really believe that. So I think at some point it basically just consumes the value. At some point, all government fiat currencies will go away and they'll just be Bitcoin. 
there might be crypto and all that other stuff, but they're sort of part of the Bitcoin base layer ecosystem. So I think basically the world's value, store of value will be sort of on the Bitcoin base like layer. Like what we're seeing with Luna, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just coming into it and kind of being absorbed into it. And I think that just is going to cause it to grow and grow. And then I think it just is, it, it, it comes down to um, the growth of the, if, of the U.S. population, not the U.S., of the world's population. So as population grows and, you know, we get the Jeff Booth scenario where technology is just rapidly advancing, increasing exponentially, quality of life is, is expanding, where we're able to expand GDP, but work less and enjoy life more. You know, that's, it's kind of the utopian vision. I actually think that we can go that way if, if things if things go well. And I think Bitcoin is the way to do that. So I think we're going to go through that S phase and then we'll get to the point where Bitcoin isn't going to keep growing exponentially. It just mathematically can't do that. Um, and then it will just kind of creep up kind of like at the same rate as GDP, um, maybe a little faster possibly. And I don't know when that is. Is that 2040, 2050? 2100 or you know i don't know how long that is but that's that's a ways into the future i think we're going to be the next decade or so and two decades are going to be basically this kind of exponential growth of bitcoin where we see it go up another 100x maybe more um in the next decade so that'll be fun yeah i think that's a that's probably a good place to kind of like wrap it up here and um a good a good way to to leave it off for for listeners hey um I want to I want to talk about the uh, the Bitcoin conference. So you're speaking there. Uh, kind of talk us through like what what exactly are you going to be talking about there? I think you're doing more than one one panel, right? So yeah, 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 sure. So so um, let's see the the industry day. That's the sixth uh, Wednesday. I'm I'm uh, going to be doing. Uh, I'm actually going to this thing called Thank God for Bitcoin, and I'm doing a macro panel with Preston Pish and a couple other guys. Um, that's in the afternoon. Uh, right before that, I'm doing something with Bitcoin Magazine where I'm going to be working at their analyst desk. So they're, we're going to be following like the Nakamoto stage speakers and talking sort of, they, they said it's going to be kind of like uh, uh, the Super Bowl when you have the analysts talking like pre-game kind of stuff. Um, I'm doing that too for a couple hours, which will be fun. Um, and then um, let's see, the Friday morning, I'm on a, 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 on, at the main conference on the Nakamoto stage, I'll be um, speaking in a macro and Bitcoin panel. Trey Lockerbie is going to be the moderator. And then it's um, me and Preston Pish and Mark Moss and Jeff Booth. Uh, so that'll be a really fun conversation, just talking macro for 40 minutes or so. That's awesome. Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely be listening to the macro one. I'll try to listen to the others cool. as well. Yeah. Hey, Dr. Jeff, we, we really appreciate you coming on the show. It's been a blast and uh, got a lot of out of this. I'm sure learn, uh, listeners did as well. Um, I kind of want to wrap it up and, and, and leave you with like an opportunity to plug yourself in and maybe any like final comments you want to leave listeners with. Oh, that's cool. Thanks. Thanks. Well, it was a lot of fun. This is a great conversation. Um, if you want to find me, I'm on Twitter all the time. My, my handle is at Valeshire cap. Valeshire is V A I L S H I R E cap. Uh, and then if you have any questions about like Valeshire and my, I, I'm obviously really different from the traditional financial planner and investment advisor. I kind of manage my client money, uh, even in the separately managed accounts, I, I manage them more like I do my hedge fund, very pro Bitcoin, obviously. Uh, if you want to learn more about that, just shoot me an email. You can do it at, um, Jeff at Valeshire.com. And, uh, that's about it for contact stuff, but yeah, final thoughts, you know, we're living in really interesting times. I think, um, I would, I would, um, steal your mind for this being kind of a tough decade. 
similar to how the 1970s were, I think, where we had really high uh, inflation, we had lots of volatility, stocks and bonds perform really poorly. Um, you want to get into hard, um, secure, sound assets, the soundest of which is Bitcoin. Um, other hard assets, I think commodities um, will do well. Real estate probably should do well as well. Um, but this is not a time to just be, um, uh, I think, being in your typical Vanguard 60-40 low fee index funds. I think they're going to struggle. And at the end of the decade, I think you're going to realize you don't, the gains that you see on the on the computer screen, you got to subtract um, what you've lost because of inflation. So the real returns are going to be much, much lower than most people are prepared for. So buckle up for that. Awesome. Hey, well, th thanks again. And uh, we'll have to get back, you know, get you back on the show, maybe in uh, Q2 or Q3 to have kind of a follow up on everything we talked about today. So appreciate you coming on the show, man. Thanks, Will. Thanks for having me. Take care.